Before I read God's word, and we will be in Genesis 17 this morning. Uh, and before I read God's word, let us go to him in prayer and ask him to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the kindness that you have done to us in giving your word to us. Lord, we pray that you would bless us in both the reading and preaching of your word. Lord, that you would encourage us, build us up, Father, that you would uh, in that you inspire our minds with an inquisitiveness, a curiosity towards, uh, towards holy things. And Father, that we would be concerned with the signs that you give your people, the things that you give us and the things that you tell us to be concerned with. Father, for we live in a hard and difficult world and, and we live in bodies that are, uh, that are falling apart and that will fall apart and that will die. And so, Lord, we know that we need the gospel. We know that we need your grace. We need something greater than ourselves. And we know, Father, that in our weakness, you have provided to us provisions like signs that help us in the faith. And so help us, Father, now as we consider the sign of the covenant, its significance for us and for your people this morning. May you bless us now. We, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I will read through, uh, let's see here. We're going to read through the whole chapter, although we were not going to go through phrase by phrase uh, through the whole chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you without their, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall, know, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings and people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to, said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? 
Shall Sarah, who is 90, 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him, an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. And behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham and Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, were those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So if you like rags to riches stories, then you like Abraham. Here's a guy who was brought pretty much out of nowhere and thrust onto the world scene. In Genesis 12, God calls to Abram and he tells him to come out of his father's house and he makes these incredible promises to him. He says he will make him into a multitude. He will give him a land to live in. He will protect him. He will bless the world through him. People, place, divine rule and blessing. These are the elements that scholars have written about Uh, These are the elements of the kingdom of God. God says, I'm going to make a kingdom of priests from you for myself. And things go pretty well at first. Abram increases in wealth and influence. At the end of chapter 14, he achieves a significant military, moral, and spiritual victory. You try doing that all at the same time. Yet Abram struggles. God comes to him in chapter 15 and and he tells Abram not to fear for I am a shield to you. But Abram is struggling because he, not because he doesn't believe, but because he believes. Because he believes the promises of God, but they don't match up with his circumstances. And so he's confused. He doesn't see how God's gonna come through and do what he said he was gonna do given where Abraham is. And then God comes to him in this passage. Well, in chapter 15, he actually, chapter 15 concludes where he goes and he makes a covenant with Abram. And he covenants those promises that he made to him back in chapter 12. And then then in this chapter, he comes to Abram again. And, And the most important thing he does in here is not the new name, is he gives him a sign. But why does God give Abram a sign? Now, Christians... The church has had trouble with signs. Some seem to look for signs almost randomly. Just if I, Lord, if you want me to do this, let me see a blue Volkswagen Beetle drive by. You know, it's like, okay. Now, and there's a strong temptation in the reform camp to yell at people and say, stop looking for signs. Read your Bible. But then you read the Bible and you see God giving signs to his people. So there's that. Moses even tells the people in Deuteronomy that the manna that was given to them was a daily sign. And it was a sign that man does not live by bread alone, 
but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's from Deuteronomy. You know, you know it probably not because you memorized Deuteronomy, but because you remember Jesus quoting Deuteronomy to Satan in the wilderness. It's one of the three passages from the book of the covenant that he quotes to Satan. And the point is, is that there was a spiritual reality to the manna. Manna was not just for the physical body, but even in Jesus' day, they didn't get it. They thought it was for the physical body. So they were like, well, Moses gave manna. What are you going to do, Jesus? Come on. And he says, you just want to fill your stomachs. You don't get it. There is a spiritual reality that attends to the signs. The signs point to things. And some signs are more special or maybe serve more specific functions than others. And so this morning we are dealing with a passage that's talking about the sign of the covenant. And we're just going to look at, there's tons we, could, tons we could say here, tons to really unpack in Genesis 17, but we're all only going to try to answer one question this morning, which is, why do we need a, the sign of the covenant? Why does God look at his people and say, you know what they need? They need the sign. If you, were gonna, if you came up with the things that you need the most, would you say, God, I need someone to throw water on me? Would you say that? No, you'd be like, I need a new car, I need a new house, I need help, I need healing, I need all these things. God says, no, 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 you need a sign. And here it's circumcision. In the new covenant, it's baptism. So why do we need a sign? Well, first, we need signs because of us. We need signs because in our weakness, we struggle to believe God's promises. Because without a sign... We tend to dramatically lower our expectations about what God is going to do. God shows up in Genesis 17 and Abram hits the deck. He falls on his face. And that's a normal reaction when God appears to someone in the Bible. But I have to wonder if at least it's not a little bit because Abram has not heard from God for 13 years. In the last verse in the last chapter, he was 86. And then the next verse of chapter 17, he's 99. Just whoosh, between two verses, 13 years, gone. So why has he not heard from God? Why is Abram hearing from God now? Well, what was the last recorded event before it, things went silent? Chapter 16, Hagar Oh, yeah, yeah, the whole Hagar method. All right, well, th- that was when Abram and Sarai tried to shortcut God's promises. It's not the first time that, it, that Abram had been guilty of this. In chapter 15, he said, Lord, you know, would you take Eliezer, the servant of my household, to be the son of promise? And he says, no, I won't do that. And, so, and, and, and now it's Sarai's turn to come up with her solution. So she looks around her circumstances, looks at herself, and then, and then the, you know, just feels like that if God's going to be successful, he just needs a little help. And so she says, all right, well, I'm going to give my maidservant to Abram. And so, and she becomes pregnant, but it doesn't turn out how Sarai hoped. Oftentimes, that's how our harebrained schemes go. As soon as Hagar got pregnant, she started to show contempt for Sarai. And with Abram's permission, Sarai mistreats Hagar, drives her out, 
And then God intervenes and brings her back, and then she has Ishmael. And then after that, nothing. Silence. Weeks pass. Months pass. A year. One year turns to two. Two years turns to five. Before you know it, a decade has gone by and not a word from the Lord. You gotta wonder what's going through Abram's mind. Did I blow it? What's going on? And then 13 years, just as Ishmael's about to become a man, God shows up and Abram hits the deck. And despite in this passage that God comes and not only confirms what he's promised, he actually expands and makes these promises even more massive. Abram's still trying to keep things reasonable. He's still trying to keep it, keep it, you know, so we can doable, right? This, God, we got to make smart goals, right? Um, S means strategic. No, 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 you know, the smart goals. You got to make it, it's got to be doable, Abram doesn't want to ask too much of God. He's prepared to accept less than what God has promised. Notice, God, he doesn't want more than God has promised. He doesn't want something other than God, what God has promised, but he's willing to accept less. And so this episode really drives home the point that we can pursue a godly thing in an ungodly way. So I'm not trying to be hard on Abram here. Abram is a man of faith. Abram's struggles with the promises of God are not struggles of unbelief, as the book of Hebrews makes that point. They are struggles of faith. He believes God. The scripture says as much in chapter 15. But he just cannot see how God is going to do it. He wants what God is promising. But he is confused and trying to figure out how it can be done. And in doing so, he suggests ways of fulfilling God's promises, essentially saying, Lord, I'll take less than what you have promised. Here, here's my servant. Here, here's the son of my maidservant. Will you take them? And we do the same thing. We look at the promises that are given to us in the new covenant. In the, it, it, are they not amazing? brought from death to life, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, adopted from the family of Satan to the family of God, cleansed from our sin, guilt removed from us, wrath of God for our sins satisfied, considered positively righteous in God's sight, not that we actually are, but God promises to treat us like we are, promised the new heavens and new earth when Christ returns, filled with the Holy Spirit until he does, bound together in the community of faith as we walk along the pilgrim way, promised victory, a certain victory over Satan, the world, and the flesh, and even now the Holy Spirit is mediating the rule of Christ in us as we die more and more to sin and live more and more to righteousness. But far too often, we look, we're looking for our Ishmael, but not our Isaac. We lower our expectations because the gospel promises are just too wonderful for our circumstances and for the corruption that we still feel in our flesh. Because where the gospel says we've died to sin so that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us, we're just like, God, can you, can't you just make me a better me? 
Jesus doesn't have to be live me in me. I just make me a better version of myself. We want God to bless our little kingdoms here on earth rather than pursuing the, the inheritance of the eternal kingdom and, and the righteousness that he says we have a share in because of Christ. God says he, he gives us himself in grace through faith, but we want us to, to accept him a little bit by our works. Instead of seeing our value in the design of the creator that he has instilled in us and the love of Christ in our redemption, we seek our value. We just want to be approved by the people around us. We want the approval that comes with the size of our bank accounts and our homes or just by how we look in the mirror. We look at the gospel and we wonder how in the world God could possibly love us like that. And sometimes we just don't see how we can. Or there are times when our circumstances seem so radically opposed to the gospel promises that we really struggle. If I am saved, then why do I struggle with sin so much and with this particular sin? How can God love me after, after such a fall as I have had? How can God overcome the sickness that is in my body? The inevitable question, if God loves me, then why is this happening? How can God care for me in this terrible season of sorrow, grief, and pain? And to be honest, we have to admit that as dark and hopeless as sometimes it feels like, it's almost scarier to hope. That sometimes we're afraid to actually hope for the things that God promised. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I'm scared. Help me. I believe your promises. I want your promises, but I look at myself and my circumstances and I just don't see how they can be true. I don't see how you're going to come through on this. And if that's you this morning, then welcome to Abram's world. God comes to Abram. And Abram is basically going, look, Lord, I am as good as dead. I believe, but how will you do it? Here is my son. Yes, born of not of the woman of promise, but here he is. He's 13. He's ready to become the son of promise. And what does God do? God doesn't chastise him. Instead, he confirms his promises, expands on them, changes Abram's name, changes Sarai's name, and then he gives him a sign. Why? Because Abram needs a sign, and so do you, and so do I. We need a sign because the sign gives a handle for our faith to hold on to. And this is because the sign confirms what God has declared he will do. So if you look at verses one through eight, you see these promises. And there's always, remember, people, place, rule, and blessing. That is the fourfold promise to Abraham. You see all those elements here in these eight verses where the promise of a people expands and goes from a multitude to a multitude of nations where the promise to bless the world through Abram comes through these kings who will descend from him in verse 6. 
In verse 8, the promised land becomes an everlasting possession for the people of God. And greatest of all, God promises his people himself. I will be their God. They will be my people. And then he says, and this is an everlasting covenant. And so by this covenant, God says he is making for himself a people who will be expressly and exclusively for him and forever. This is a divine purpose in the scriptures that reaches all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and goes all the way forward to Revelation 22. And note in this covenant relationship, the repetition of the eyes, how God-centered everything is. God is the one who is giving in this relationship. Abraham is the receiver in this relationship. God is the one who's doing all that is necessary to accomplish the covenant promises. Yes, he calls upon Abram to walk before him and be blameless, but that is not a call for meritorious, sinless perfection. As one scholar put it, God directs Abraham to live life before him. That's what biblical, the idea of walking, it's living your life. To walk before him, to live life before him, a life in which every step is taken looking to God and every day of which is accompanied by him. God also changes the name of his servants. Abram, which means exalted father, will now be called Abraham, the father of a multitude. Sarai, the meaning of which we don't know, is changed to Sarah, which means princess, indicating the royalty that is going to proceed from her in the coming generations. The royalty by which God will bless the world. These names are promissory names. They are representative of the promises of God, the fulfillment of which will extend beyond their lifetime. Yet these are not the sign of the covenant. God gives a sign to confirm these promises to confirm these names in verses 9 through 14. It's a physical act that represents a spiritual reality. The act of the cutting away of the flesh is to be placed upon Abraham and every male in his household. It's not random. Verse 10, God equates the sign with the covenant itself. Verse 11, he explicitly calls it the sign of the covenant. But the sign points to a deeper reality. Because the circumcision circumcision of the flesh represents God's covenant promises. It represents the covenant and the promises that are a part of it. It also represents the circumcision of the heart of God's people. The necessary reality of the inward circumcision that must occur in the hearts of his people. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy 10.16, Jeremiah 4.4, Jeremiah 9.25, where God says, I will come, come and punish those who are not who are not inwardly circumcised. And so whoever refuses the sign, it breaks the covenant in verse 14. To refuse the sign is to say that one does not want, have, does not want to have anything to do with the covenant. For Abraham to refuse to circumcise his children is to say, I don't want my children to have to do with the covenant. This is why God gets so mad at Moses in the book of Exodus and comes after him. But the application of the sign is not 
primarily about individual faith. We know that because God commands it to be applied to Abraham and his household, including infants. The sign points not to Abraham's response of faith, but to the covenant promises which God has declared he will do by his own power. And so I was coming back from Birmingham. I was visiting Sean and Haley in UAB uh, uh, last Monday. And, uh, and as I neared Meridian, a wonderful sign appeared on the horizon, Chick-fil-A. And, and, and so, you know what I did next? I pulled my car to the side and I climbed up the sign so I could get that chicken, right? No, I didn't do that. One, we'd get arrested. Number two, there's no chicken there, right? The sign points to the glorious realities of fried chicken off exit 154. In the same way, the sign of the covenant is not the thing itself, but it points to the promises of the covenant that God has made in that covenant. And like the Chick-fil-A sign, my hunger will not be satisfied if I have the sign, but if I have what the sign signifies. If I follow the sign to the restaurant. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, where is the sign today? If it was circumcision before, what is it now? Well, according to Paul, the covenant promises to Abraham have all been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, all over the place right here. But in Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, there Paul says that he sees circumcision, a spiritual circumcision made without hands, and a spiritual baptism that is done by Christ, and he unites them together. And along with Christ's command to baptize disciples into the Trinitarian name, this leads us to the conclusion that, along with other passages and considerations, that baptism is the sign of the new covenant. This means that the substance of the Abrahamic covenant and the substance of the new covenant are fundamentally the same, even though you have a greater revelation, a greater outpouring in the new covenant, because both are a part of the covenant of grace. There is, there is a greater fulfillment, a true filling full of the covenant promises in the new covenant with Christ. So the, pro, the promises of the covenant are represented by the sign And as such, they are to be applied similarly to the previous sign of the covenant, therefore to believers and their children. But like circumcision, where those circumcised in the flesh, God also requires a circumcision of the heart. Infants who are baptized need a baptism of the heart because they must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They must receive and rest upon Jesus Christ for salvation. But what this means is that we who are baptized bear on our body the sign of God's covenant grace to us. There is a sign that believers and their children carry around in the weakness of our flesh that points us to to spiritual realities beyond our comprehension. That our faith is just, just barely hanging on to the coattails of. And in giving us this sign, God gives us a handle for our faith. Some of you know one of the elders of my church, Russell. It's hard to, meet. It's hard to miss Russell, he's, he, he, especially if he starts talking. So he's got a good booming voice. 
But he, uh, he's also uh, started his, when he started working, he was uh, on an oil rig. And so well, you, they chopper you out to a, an oil rig. And the question is, well, what happens if the chopper goes down in the water? And so, they, and so in their training, uh, the, the, well, the chopper will hit the water and then it capsizes because it's top heavy. So it'll turn over. So in their training, they take you to a pool, they strap you into, into a cage, and then they take the cage and they put it over a pool, they turn it upside down, they drop it in the pool. And they have dive teams there to make sure you don't die. But, um, but then you're training. You have to know how to escape from this helicopter upside down underwater. And so one, what they teach you to do is very simple. One hand, you grab hold of a handle. And you know where that handle is. So no matter if you're right side, upside, left side, wherever it is, you know where you are because you've got hold of that handle. And with the other hand, you can use to unstrap yourself and get it. So you, and then you use that handle to pull yourself wherever you need to go. Baptism is a handle to hold on to when your life is crashing down. When everything is going wrong, when our decisions are going wrong, when things beyond our control come in, baptism points us toward the anchor of our souls because that's what it's attached to. Baptism is a handle by which we pull ourselves to safety. It's not salvation by self-effort. But in that, baptism reminds us that we are the Lord's. We do not belong to Satan. We don't even belong to ourselves. We are cleansed of our sin by the blood of Christ, united to him in death and resurrection. We have overcome the world, and God has given us a sign to remind us, not him, to remind us of that truth. Because in baptism, God points us to the covenant. And in the covenant, God is the primary mover. He takes up all those eyes that we see in Genesis 17. I have saved you. I have secured you. I have cleansed you. I have redeemed you. You're mine. I am your God. You are my people. I will yet uphold you and bring you into my very presence. My faithfulness will outlive your weak faith, will overcome your weakness, for one day you will see me. You'll need faith because you'll see me. And you'll live with me forever. So baptism is the handle that we take with us. We take it to graduations and marriages and to new homes that we've purchased. And we take it to hardship. And we take it to the hospital. Just told Sean and Haley this morning, he's taken that baptism, that sign, he's taken it with him to the operating table. He's not leaving it there. He didn't leave it at Bailey Church. It's on his body. It's a sign we take to the funeral home. God gives us a sign not to assure us of our weak, worldly hopes, but to confirm his gracious, life-giving, mind-blowing, world-changing promises. He applies the sign to our bodies that are still subject to pain and death. And so wherever you are this morning, whatever you're going through, if you have received the sign of the covenant, then look to that covenant and hold on. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who gives us signs. You know our weakness. You know our needs. And you don't chastise us. You don't shake your head. You don't wag your finger finger at us. A bruised reed your son will not break. When he faced, when, when, he was bef- when he had doubting Thomas before him, he didn't, he didn't yell at him. He didn't smack him for his lack of faith. He grabbed his hand and he put it to his wounds. Father, may we consider the privilege that we carry in our bodies the sign of the new covenant in Christ. May he give us hope in times of suffering and uncertainty. May it give us strength to bear these hard providences well. May we do so with joy, even a sorrowful joy, a painful joy, because we know our Savior has overcome the world, and through him we are more than conquerors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.